Well, welcome Peter Fader, marketing professor at the Wharton School of Business and author of Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. Peter, glad to have you here today. Great to be here with you, Mark. Happy to chat. Excellent, excellent. So Peter, uh, please tell us a, a little bit about your background and what you do at Wharton, what you're sure. teaching and the consulting work that you do. Absolutely. So on, on one hand, it's incredibly boring. I've been doing the same thing for 34 years, just as, as a marketing professor, uh, teaching courses, trying to bring, trying to raise the level of quantitative literacy in marketing, getting people to better appreciate data analytics and data-driven decisions, doing that in lots of different ways over the years, writing a lot of academic papers, a couple of more accessible books and social media and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also, I, I found that just talking about this stuff and professing isn't enough. So I've, I've founded a couple of companies, advised countless others to, to try to help uh, spread the gospel about a, a really better understanding of data, of customer behavior patterns, and of marketing practices. So why did you write this book? And this is, I believe, your second book, correct? So I have uh, two, two books on customer centricity. So, so book number one, which is like, what, what are we talking about? <laughs> like, what, what is this stuff and why should we be interested? And then book number two about more about implementation. So how do we do it? Uh, and, and, and the why story is actually maybe more interesting than the books themselves. Because as I said, I've been building these predictive models for years and years and years, and they're good and they work. And they're really practical. And some of the insights that arise from them are, are really helpful above and beyond good forecasts and so on. Uh, and I just found it really frustrating around 10 years ago that I'm putting all this advice out, putting all these models out there saying, hey, you know, uh, here, here's some free R code and spreadsheets and videos and cases and technical notes. Go use this stuff. Go be smart. Go make more money. Uh, and companies would still dismiss me. They'd say, well, that might be nice in the ivory tower, or that might be nice for consumer-oriented businesses, but our business is different. Uh, and so I needed to kind of get the message out there broadly and deeply, and I needed to create some urgency with it. So basically, the, the, the main point of, of book number one is the sky is falling, you're doomed to fail. If you just stay obsessed with your product or the service that you deliver, and don't think more broadly about the customers who are buying it, you're never going to achieve the kind of growth that you or your external stakeholders are demanding from you. So it's just a way to get people to think a little bit differently. And then, of course, how to act on it as well. Uh, the books have been great in that regard, really stoking a conversation. But then I need these more hands-on startups to actually do some of the heavy lifting that is espoused there. So clear they weren't reading uh, Michael Lewis's money book or they'd really be tuned into what you did because that's kind of essentially what they've done is take statistics and really use it. And now Jeff yes. Bezos says Amazon has shown everybody how he became the richest man in the world by just using what you do. Uh, you know, I, 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 I uh, respectfully and interestingly disagree with both of those points. First of all, what Michael Lewis did, and that's really not Michael Lewis, he wrote the book, but, but a lot of those sabermetric people, um, a lot of that stuff that's going on in professional sports isn't really that good. I mean, it's way better than it used to be, but you got a, people, a lot of people are just kind of focusing on data, 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 but not necessarily getting really good insights from it. And there's all these stories. There was that one minor league team that was uh, bought by a, a couple of sabermetrician people, and the team was a, a dismal failure. What we're trying to do is to get beyond the data, to get to the real meaningful insights, to the real repeatable patterns. And there is some of that on the sports side too, but a lot of the stuff for sports fans out there who obsess about things like war, you know, wins above replacement, these are just yeah. kind of made up arbitrary metrics that aren't very grounded, aren't very principled. The story behind them is, is kind of ugly. Um, where I'm coming at it in, in a much more principled way is I want to really formally understand what's going on below the surface of the data. Use the data to bring it to life, but, but don't obsess over the data a little bit too much. Um, and with so, let's, base, so let's talk about uh, what uh, is customer centricity? Yeah, so, so uh, again, the, the words themselves are too vague. 
Uh, and there's a lot of companies saying, yeah, we're customer centric. We love every one of our customers. We'll do whatever our customers want us to do. And, and my point is twofold. Number one, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> and number two, that's not a good idea because uh, most of your customers are eh, so-so. They're, they're just not that good. Uh, you know, they, they buy from you once a year or only when stuff is on sale. Um, sometimes they're very expensive to maintain because they're always annoying you and asking for more. But most of your customers aren't that good. Most of your customers are ugly ducklings. And that's okay. And I'm not saying you should fire them. That's just the reality of it. The question is, who are the beautiful swans? And if you can find out who they are, and if you can spend a little bit more time focusing on them, instead of trying to turn the ugly ducklings into them, to say, how are they different? How are they using our products differently? What other kinds of products and services should we be developing and offering for them? And how do we acquire more customers like them? So when I talk about customer centricity, I'm not saying we should be centered around every customer. No! I'm saying we should figure out who are the customers we should be centered around and use them as the growth engine while we continue to deal with the other so-so customers just to keep the lights on, to help us meet payroll every week. So uh, I'm already stirring up with a question before I go back to my own, and which is how should I identify customer groups that have the biggest opportunity for growth? Yes, uh, and so this, this actually takes us back to the, the Moneyball type question, because too often, we just rely on surface level characteristics. Uh, so we just look at what people have done. We look at a B2B setting, the, the kind of nature or composition of the firm. Uh, and, and, and in this day and age, with the rich behavioral data, knowing who's buying what, when, we're not really leveraging that information quite enough. And so uh, the, the big aha for me, I mean, I've been doing this, like I said, for you know, 30 plus years, but the big aha for me occurred around 20 years ago uh, when I stumbled into some of the models for customer lifetime value. So yes, let's use some of that historical data, but we're gonna merely use it as a guide to help us understand what the future is gonna look like. So which customers are likely to stay with me the longest, purchase the most, be the easiest to serve, uh, and so on. So I, I wanna use these future looking metrics and I want to target, I want to segment, I want to take action, I want to evaluate those actions on the basis of customer lifetime value. And for a lot of people, that's either not part of their vocabulary or it's just some kind of wishy-washy aspirational term that they don't think can really be brought to life at full commercial scale, and it can. And that's what I want to talk about. Excellent. So in the book, you mentioned a formula. Could you please tell the components and why they're significant? Yeah, so I'm not going to do the math thing, although I hope that some of you want it. And if any of you are interested, I'm really happy to send you my whole, you know, CLV starter kit that will have lots and lots and lots of information on it. But it's, it's, it's really quite simple. Uh, if you think about it, if you boil business down to its basic essentials, okay, put aside the products that we sell and, and the the channel relationships, what it's ultimately all about is how many customers are we going to acquire? How long will those customers stay with us? Over that horizon, until they leave, how many purchases will they make or other kinds of economically valuable interactions will they have with us? And when they do, how much money will we make off of each of those interactions? So if we put aside the first one, not to belittle it at all, the how many customers will we acquire, that, that's kind of separate. But if we can say, how long are the customers going to stay? How often are they going to interact? And how much money are we going to make? Each of those behaviors is super interesting by itself. When you bring it all together and project it forward, that's customer lifetime value. And so it's basically, it's really not one formula, Mark. It's really three separate formulas that we just find ways to weave together in ways that are both efficient from a computational standpoint and not particularly demanding from a data standpoint. And it's remarkable how well we can make these projections on very little data. Is that why the 25, 21 to 35 year old market is so coveted because of the length of potential opportunity with them? Mark, I hate to be so disagreeable with you, but-, but um, <laughs> It's okay. Uh, um, no, no, the reason why that demographic sector is coveted is, I, I mean, you, you're, you're right that they, they have more 
longevity to them. But the reality is they're probably going to churn long before they turn 36 years old. Customers don't really stay with you that long, with some exceptions, of course. Um, no, the reason why they're coveted is because that's what people told us back in the 1950s. You know, when we, when we first discovered marketing, as we think about it today, the only way that we were able to put people in buckets was on the basis of kind of what they look like. So, you know, young people, old people, it was sometimes based on gender, sometimes I hate to say based on, on, on race or just other surface level characteristics that ultimately aren't nearly as predictive of future lifetime value. And I can't tell you the, the, the bane of my existence is working with all of these digitally native companies trying to sell, you know, underwear and cosmetics over the internet. And all they're doing is going after those millennials. When we pull out our magic wand to calculate lifetime value, we find out, you know what? Those millennials individually and collectively generally aren't worth as much as oh, baby boomers. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, uh, and so it's, it's, it's really important to look at people on the basis of what they do and what we think they will do instead of the, the, the surface level characteristics that continue to dominate thinking today, even though the data that we have is much better than it was when we first started thinking along those lines. I agree with you totally with what you just said. I, I, I always though hear that retailers are always, everybody is always saying, oh, we got to get the 21 to 35 year old market but I see a lot more money once my kids are now out of college and I have a lot more spending money that I can spend on lots of different products, not just because I'm almost 60, but everything from motorcycles to cars to trips, you name it. Now I have the excess cash to go and do it as opposed to when I was 21, 35, saving up for houses, college education, so forth. Right. You mentioned different industries and types of organizations such as places of worship have different ways of calculating non-contractual businesses. Please explain that. Yeah, because when I, when I kind of lay it out there in, in basic terms, you know, the how long will you stay? Okay, that, that part we understand. How long will the relationship last until you just no longer have any need for this product or service? Okay, that, that one's fairly easy and, and fairly easy to predict and understand. But the second one is tricky. So when we talk about those interactions, uh, again, the, the most natural thing to do would be to talk about purchases, or let's say in the case of a, a nonprofit donations. But there can be other ways that, that, that value can be created and transferred as well. So let, let's say in a, for, for a religious organization, it might be volunteer activities, um, or in other settings, it might be um, giving referrals or posting good things on social media. So when we talk about those, you know, economically valuable interactions, uh, it starts with purchasing. I mean, that's the easiest one to measure, the easiest one to database, the easiest one to forecast. Uh, it's also the most common and standard, but there can be some industry specific behaviors that we should be tagging, tracking, predicting, encouraging as well. Uh, and, I, and I like using examples like that just to show people that it isn't just about digitally native men's underwear companies, but it really is very broadly defined to, you know, uh, nonprofits as well as profits, B2B as well as B2C, you know, tiny little companies as well as great big ones. Uh, what are the mistakes to avoid when calculating this and, and using it, uh, as it as you took it to, uh, to enhance your bottom line? So, so one of the mistakes to avoid is to, um, presuppose what the outcome is going to be. And, it, and, I, and again, I find it so ironic and maddening that there's all these companies out there that claim that they're doing this stuff. Oh, we have an army of PhD data scientists who help us get the millennials. No. So sometimes they either, they know what conclusion they want to reach and then they're, they're kind of just mindlessly marching in that direction and not letting the data tell them really who are the best customers out there. Um, or, or again, or just looking for confirmation of, of those, those, those kinds of notions. Um, uh, and uh, other problems would include things that, that, that we just spoke about, which would be we're not fully accounting for all the sources of value that we're focusing a little bit too much on the ones that are just readily available to us. And I have plenty more, but, but one more that I'll throw at you is uh, as much as I like to talk about the upside potential, the revenue part, we got to do a better job on the cost side too. Because look, every one of you knows, every one of you has some of those pain in the ass customers 
and maybe they do a lot of stuff with you, but they're just so difficult to deal with. Man, oh man, oh man, I wish that we could calculate the cost of serving them and retaining them as, as easily as we could calculate the cost, the, the, the value, the revenue we get from them. So we need to be just as clear on the cost side as on the revenue side. And when we're talking about lifetime value, we really need to be netting out those costs. And sometimes we'll get dramatically different results. Uh, what's the minimum needed for acceptable customer service for selling products? You know, that again, now we're, now we're, on, on, we're rolling here. Uh, and, and I love the way that you phrase that question because there's a lot of companies out there going back to the idea of turning those ugly ducklings into beautiful swans, that if we can just hire enough customer service reps, if we can just, you know, if we can get them on the phone, we can make that transformation happen. Easier said than done. Now, I'm not saying that customer service is unimportant, okay? But I am saying that some companies are over-investing in it because a lot of those people who are calling up that 1-800 number are these so-so customers. They're either not worth that much or they're very expensive to maintain. Um, and, and they're using up more than their fair share of, of customer service time and effort. Uh, and so, so, so in my newer book, I lay out a whole framework, a whole two by two matrix, where, where you think about customer service just as one of four different types of retaining and developing customers. And that would, be, would apply for, for low-end customers when we're playing defense with them. You know, we don't want them to run away. We're not trying to fire them. But there's other things that we should be doing. We should be focusing on the high-end customers, and we should be focusing just as much on, on kind of playing offense as we do on playing defense. And the point is that we need different kinds of tactics, loyalty programs, premium services, strategic account management, to complement customer service to make sure that we're, um, we're hitting all cylinders. Excuse me one second. What if you're a startup without a data history to mine? Are there sources available to model data for the startup offering? Yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, I'll, let me first say that it's difficult, not only because of the lack of data. I mean, even if you're a young startup and you have, say, a year or two of data, uh, even then, those early customers aren't typical of what your steady state customer base is going to be. Those people who are lining up around the block to buy that new product from you, they're not typical. They're too good. So I, I generally want to wait about three or four years. I really want to have, you know, say, you know, 12 quarters of data before, so I can see a customer base start to settle down. So, so on one hand, for an for early company, what I, do, I first want to do is just to develop the infrastructure and the mindset to have the capability to be able to do this stuff. So when we have enough data, we can really act on it. But I want companies to start practicing early because they can't just wait and set an alarm clock. Okay, when we're four years old, we'll do it then. So it's nice to come up with proxy measures, things that might not be quite as rich, quite as predictive as full scale customer lifetime value. And this is where something like net promoter score comes in. And I bet that, that a lot of folks on the call are familiar with NPS and I, I'm actually a, a big fan of it, even though most academics hate it. Um, and I think NPS in some ways- Explain like, what that is for, oh, those, I'm who sorry, for those who don't know it. So all of you do know it, even if you don't mm -hmm. know that label, because anytime you, you get your car repaired, or you go to a quick service restaurant or, or you, know, you, you get a new loan. And at the end of it, they give you this survey of how we do, how we did, uh, and there's always that one question. There's always that one question. Would you recommend us to a friend or neighbor? And if they're doing it uh, most commonly, they ask it to you on a zero to 10 scale. And the basic idea is if you check off a nine or 10, you're a promoter. If you're a zero to six, you're a detractor. If you're a seven or eight, you're a neutral. And let's take the percent of people who use the right part of the scale, the promoters, minus the percent of people who chose the left part of the scale, the detractors, and it gives us net promoter score. And around 20 years ago, a couple of partners at Bain Consulting found that this measure nicely reflected the kinds of ideas that I've been talking about, that not all customers are created equally, and that companies that have done a good job of finding a good mix of customers will have many more promoters than detractors. So, so it's, it's actually quite a good metric, and it does align very well with some of these, these more behavioral notions of customer lifetime value. So I actually do encourage uh, companies to, to do that kind of attitudinal thing. How are we doing? 
uh, and then just getting comfortable with it, starting to look for differences across their customers, starting to understand why those customers on the right are different than the customers on the left, starting to think a little bit more about developing products and services for them instead of products and services are aiming right down the middle at the average customer. So you really can start to do some of that stuff early on, even before you have the really rich behavioral data to, to do it in the best possible manner. Is your new venture that you were telling me about going to be doing some of that type of thing for all sizes of companies? Yeah, so I should, I should talk about the, 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 the two companies. So, so the first one, so, so again, I write the, the, these books uh, and, and I get companies to say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Customers aren't created all the same. Yeah, we need to understand the difference and we need to quantify it. So the first company was called Zodiac and we worked with a wide variety of firms, admittedly, mostly on the consumer side. Uh, so, you know, retailers, travel and hospitality, pharmaceuticals, telcos, gaming companies, you name it, but a bunch on the B2B side as well. Uh, 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 and basically to give them that, that magic CLV1 to figure out the value of each and every customer, to figure out what makes those high value customers different, how to find more like them, all the stuff I was saying before. That was great. We had a, a wonderful outcome with it. We sold that company to Nike, which itself was, was a wonderful validation of, of, of the of the kind of rigor and realness of this kind of work, and then founded a new company that I bet a, a, a lot of folks on the call will, will find interesting. The new company is called Theta Equity Partners, and we're focusing on the idea of customer-based corporate valuation, working with private equity firms, family offices, other kinds of investors, as well as directly with a lot of corporates to basically do corporate valuation from the bottom up. Because if you think about it, how many customers we acquire, how long they stay, how often they transact, and how much we make from them, that's our revenue. <laughs> so if we can predict each of those components and therefore revenue more accurately over longer horizons with greater granularity and greater diagnostics to understand the quality of that revenue, we can do a better job on the financial side and then sync it up with the marketing side. And that's what we're doing at, at, at Theta Equity Partners. And it's been, it's been glorious to basically start with the CFO instead of the CMO using the same exact models, but then getting the CMO on board using the same models to not only target customers with emails or whatever, but also to talk to our external stakeholders about how much equity we really have here and why the company is worth more than Wall Street is giving us credit for. It's wonderful when it all comes together like that. In order to increase the number of customers that are similar to your top customers, can you speak to the difference between growing your customer, uh, your current ugly duckling customers that you, that your brand into beautiful swans, uh, retention and upsell versus going into the market to acquire lookalike customers for the first time? It's, this is a really, really critical question. Of course, the right answer is you need to do both. But the problem is there's too many companies out there who, do, who really believe in, in, in naivete and arrogance that let's just acquire as many customers as we can as cheaply as possible and then we will educate them. We will teach them why we're the best and why they want to buy more from us and stay with us longer. Uh, and that's easier said than done. Uh, so so, so let's, let's, let's kind of uh, take them in turn. Uh, first of all, we want to be smarter about acquisition. So once we do the lifetime value thing, and we see the, that right tail of really valuable customers. And we ask ourselves, what's different about them? And it's not just demographics, okay? As we said before, it's gonna be more about acquisition characteristics. Like what's the first product they bought from us? What channel did we acquire them through? What kind of program um, did, did we acquire them through? So let's think about different kinds of acquisition characteristics that disproportionately favor the higher value customers. And let's just do more of that. It's not that hard. Um, the problem is if companies even get this, they way, 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 way oversimplify it. And so they'll, they'll come up with bum, 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 personas. They'll say, we have three great customers. We have Carpool Carla, Busy yeah. Betty, and Working Wanda. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem is those valuable customers can't easily be pigeonholed like that. That their profile might be narrower than the customer base as a whole, but there's still a lot of heterogeneity among them. So it's hard just to, it's hard to do customer acquisition as spear phishing. It's more about net throwing. It's just that we want to get smarter about how and where we throw the nets. So that's on the acquisition side. 
And then on the retention development side, I already dropped a few hints about that. It's finding that just right mix of tactics, understanding when do we use the loyalty program or something like that? There's too many companies out there that see that as a panacea. We'll just build develop that for everybody. My view is a loyalty program is good when you want to squeeze a little bit more juice out of those ugly ducklings. Like, you know, they buy from us once in a while. We'd like to get them to buy a little bit more often. Maybe they won't become beautiful swans, but let's just try to get more out of them. Buy nine, get one free. Come on, just buy a little bit more often. So, so using a loyalty program for them, but for those super duper high-end customers uh, who are buying from you all the time, don't give them this buy nine, get one free thing. It's almost insulting to them. For them, you want a premium service. You want the kind of thing like LinkedIn has and, 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 and other companies where they, they, they love you. They're buying everything from you. They want more. They want all kinds of features and functions that most of your customers couldn't care less about, and they're willing to pay for them. And so I really want more companies to have some kind of premium service that's not broadly appealing, but for those high-end customers who have special needs and we want to build things for them, uh, it's a chance for them to kind of step up and, and, and get different stuff, uh, to, to, to get more value and to give more value in exchange. Most companies are afraid to do that. I guess the casinos have very much understood this concept for a very long time. Sure, they absolutely have, having that special high rollers room over there. Uh, and what I'm doing right now is really trying to push just kind of regular companies to embrace it more often. I'm yelling at the folks at Twitter all the time. Uh, and, and I love Twitter. I think it's a very, very interesting, not only interesting platform, an interesting company. Uh, and I go to them, and I shouldn't say this, this is just terrible. Don't you think the president of the United States would pay $10 a month to edit his tweets? Um, I mean, all right, so don't answer that. But, but the point is that for a heavy duty user of Twitter, like myself, at Fader P, follow me, um, there are all kinds of features and functions that I would pay for uh, uh, that other people couldn't care less about. Uh, and so we're often leaving money on the table with those high end customers because we're either afraid to develop those products and services because they're not broadly appealing or we're afraid to you know, ask them to pay for it uh, and, and, and they want to. It's almost a badge of, of honor to, 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 to say that you're part of that club. Uh, you know what, uh, Peter, you say that, and I used to work for Len Lodish, one of your colleagues, when I was my, during my time at Wharton, and he always used to say to our clients all the time, you're really underselling, undervaluing what you have. So you've been doing this consulting. Give an example, and you don't have to name the company if you can't name the company, but give an example of how you came in and did this with somebody and, and they were able to do that. I love to name names, actually. <laughs> um, so uh, actually, I, I have a, so this, this is book number one, but this is a new version of it that just came out about a month ago. And in it, in the front end, I basically talk about the 10 years since I wrote the original version of it. And I tell a story about Starbucks, because you know Starbucks, uh, they've kind of plateaued, which is a very interesting point by itself. But when they were kind of just a darling of, of, the, of the business world, you know, in the 80s, 90s, growing like crazy. Uh, and I was always kind of critical about them because they were always very product focused. Howard Schultz would spend all his time thinking about what should be the next roast? <laughs> should we have a breakfast sandwich or not? Should we offer Wi-Fi to our customers? He was always thinking about the product and the service. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. That's the wrong way to think about it. You got to understand the differences across your customers. You got to understand who those high value ones are. What is it that they want? And then use that to drive a lot of these R&D decisions. So as the story goes, this executive at Starbucks, not only will I name names, I'm going to name names. His <laughs> name is uh, Amy Johnson. Uh, and she ran all of their analytics and all that stuff. Uh, and she was assigned by some high up person, maybe Howard himself, because I was saying all these critical things about Starbucks. And she was assigned to reach out to me to kind of set me straight, to, to re-educate this nutty professor. And I explained to her what I was trying to do and why, and why it would be in Starbucks' best interest to follow me instead of argue with me. Uh, and I won her over. And it was just amazing. And some of you might remember a couple of years ago how they, they massively changed their loyalty program and they're now calculating lifetime value and they're really using it to understand how customers are different from each other, using that to drive a lot of their products and services. It was just a, a wonderful opportunity to see a company transform itself. And to finish up that story, Amy left Starbucks about a year ago 
and she just became the chief marketing officer at Zillow, you know, the, the real estate yes. company. Another company that's very, very, very product focused. And as some of you know, they're now trying to bring a wider variety of products and services. And I'm saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We first have to understand the customers before we decide what products and services we're going to offer. And the cycle continues. Lots and lots of examples like that. I'm glad to share more, but, but why don't you keep on going, Mark? Sure, sure. So uh, a lot of our companies who are listening today are early stage companies. Does this suggest that we should um, build ways to understand customers deeply at the very start? And I think you're advocating that. I am, I am, I am. But so, so I'm going to give a couple of caveats on that. You know, I, I want to go back to, to, to what Matt said uh, as, as, as the sponsor of the program. You know, he said that there's a lot of information in the owner's heads. You all understand that not all customers are created equal. You all understand that some of these customers are better than others. You know them pretty well. And you know some of them when you come in and you're going to kind of surround them with all kinds of value. And others, you're not going to chase anybody away, but, you know, you're going to treat them a little bit differently. But the problem is you don't formalize that. You don't write it down. You don't say that, you know, these are going, this is going to be a, a mantra for us. And the problem is that as your business expands, as you open up that second store or you move into that second geographic area or you launch that second business unit, a lot of this kind of customer knowledge and intimacy out the window. And all you do is you focus on the products, either focus on the product quality or the product efficiency. And I'm saying, you want to do that tagging and tracking. You want to have that kind of intuitive sense of who the good customers are and who the so-so ones are. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to do that at full commercial scale and to kind of never lose that sense that they're not all created equal and that we can leverage that information to make more money than treating them all the same. So yes, a part of it is mindset. You can't lose it. And part of it, as I said before, is starting to build the CRM infrastructure on the early side, so that when you have enough of a database, you can start to use it right away. So uh, let's go back to Starbucks and loyalty programs. Are, are loyalty programs effective? And what's an example of a successful loyalty program? Because we're all familiar with the reference of Starbucks, which you mentioned, but you write not, that might not be a good example. Yeah, so, so again, what are loyalty programs for? They're a way we can play offense with those kind of low to medium end customers. Buy nine, get one free. That's what it's all about. So if you understand that that's what it's for and you kind of aim both the, uh, the incentives, the rewards, the conversation for those kinds of activities and for those kinds of customers, you can find great success with it. But the problem is too many companies have expectations for the loyalty program that are just too broad. So for instance, uh, they, they expect that it's going to turn ugly ducklings into beautiful swans instead of just turning ugly ducklings into slightly less ugly ducklings, which is valuable. Um, secondly, they give too many of the rewards away for those high-end customers. You think about the airlines. Uh, well, we don't think about airlines much anymore, do we? But I just think about all the ways before COVID that I was basically abusing American Airlines because I'm executive platinum and I'm getting all these goodies and uh, but as you know, as some of you know, the airlines also have kind of their secret thing. Like for, for American Airlines, there's the concierge key program. And I would pay any amount of money to belong to that, to be the special members only, to have the car pick me up from one flight and take me to the other one. Premium service, okay? And don't be shy about it. Don't keep it as a hidden secret thing. Put it out there. Let people pay for it. You know, Amazon Prime used to be such a thing. Amazon Prime was a premium service. Who would pay all that money for free shipping? Uh, and one of the, the, the things is Amazon Prime has now become basically a requirement. Every one of you has Amazon Prime. So what we want now is Amazon super duper triple prime where you pay $1,000 a month and you have Jeff Bezos himself bring the product to your door. And I'm only half kidding. Well, I'm kidding about the Bezos part. But, but there's a lot of you, including me, who would pay for a true premium service with Amazon. It would give me all kinds of features and functions, capabilities, not just like as a status symbol, that too, but that ordinary mundane once or twice a year users of the service wouldn't want. We need to separate those things out, very important. So um, you mentioned three tactics for customer-centric acquisition, retention, and development. How do you uh, have them all work together? And is one more important than the other? So let me start with the, the, the latter question. 
yes, I have my bias there, and especially for the kinds of companies represented right here. I'll tell you what, let's play a game right now, okay? I want every one of you, okay? So let's think about acquisition, retention, and development, okay? So you, you, you do all your thinking and your math and whatever, all your planning, and you allocate your budget for the next year of how much you're going to spend on acquiring new customers versus retaining existing ones versus trying to, you know, upsell, cross-sell, you know, create more value for the existing ones, okay? You do all that. And then you find an extra $10,000 in your budget, okay? Which one of those three things, okay, at the margin, which one of those three things are you going to spend it on? Okay, so go ahead, type it into the chat right now. I want you to type in A, R, or D. At the margin, which one are you going to spend it on? I'm going to write down the numbers. I'm not even going to look at what you're going to say. Turn it away from, from the screen. But I'm going to write down the answers. Okay, so I want you to write down acquisition, retention, development. And I am going to tell you what you are saying right now. Okay, write down. So you're like the great Kreskin right now. That you're going to tell us that. Exactly this. right. I, that is exactly what I'm doing. I, I've already seen what it all looks like so far. Okay. And I would yeah, say 90% of it is one of two things. What do you think they are? Don't look. Uh, yes, that's right. Wow, Kreskin, you did great. Yeah. This, this is the way it always works. See, the problem is that we, we think about those flesh and blood customers that we have, and we do anything to hang on to them. And we hear advice that people tell us that customer acquisition is much more expensive than customer retention. And so you really got to focus on the customers you have. And to that, and that might be true, but my take on that is stop being such a freaking cheapskate, okay? Don't manage your customer base on the basis of cost. You want to manage it on the basis of value, customer lifetime value. So we tend to obsess a little bit too much on the retention and development of the existing customers, and a little bit too little on the acquisition side. And I'm gonna go back to what I said before, is once we wave the magic wand and we can see the value of each and every customer, and we can say, oh my gosh, some of these customers are worth so much. Man, I wish we could have more customers like them. But then when it comes to our acquisition activities, we turn around, we're being cheapskates, we're trying to buy these, these Google search keywords as cheaply as possible, okay? We need to spend more on acquisition at the margin. Okay? I'm not saying don't spend on the, the retention and development, but at the margin, by underspending on acquisition, we get what we pay for, which is a bunch of shitty customers. Uh, and so we, if, if we wanna go after those really good ones, we gotta spend to get them. We gotta understand what makes them different. And again, it's never gonna be fishing with spears, it's still throwing nets out, but it's going to be throwing the nets out there in just a, a much more informed way and having a better understanding that, yeah, most of the fish that we catch are minnows instead of whales. Bad metaphor, whatever. Um, but if we can just bump up the whale proportion by a small percent, they're a thousand times more valuable. It, it's going to be so worth it. So that's what I'm trying to do. At the margin, a little bit more on acquisition. And it's going to be on quantity, not necessarily, oh, sorry, quality, not necessarily quantity. I believe in the book you felt that uh, Amazon does this well, um, but is there anybody else that you look at and you say, God, they really do it well. Who are you impressed with? Yeah, my, my, my absolutely favorite, favorite company in this regard, I have lots of favorites, uh, is Electronic Arts, the gaming company. Yeah, you mentioned you that in your book. Madden Football or SimCity. Um, they're brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Every single day, every day, they look at what games you're playing, for how long, are you making any micropayments in the game? At the end of the day, they are recalculating your customer lifetime value. I'm not exaggerating. For a billion people around the world who play their games, every single day, they say, how much more valuable is this customer today than she was yesterday? And that's, that by itself is just way cool, but it's the way that they use it. So, in, so I'll give you like two or three quick stories. And, and again, all of you should be doing this stuff. Story number one, on the R&D side, instead of going to the R&D people and saying, hey, R&D people, 
We need another blockbuster, okay? So what do you have for us? I mean, that's the way it works with most companies, right? That's not the way it works with electronic arts. Electronic arts, they say, hey, R&D people, we got these really valuable customers over here. Can you come up with a product for them? They let the knowledge of those customers drive the decisions of what kind of games to develop and what kind of features to emphasize within them. I mean, that's amazing. That's heretical because the R&D people do not like to be told what to do. Uh, and so to find a way to actually get them on board with it is difficult. And we can talk about that. Uh, and then secondly, and then I'll move on, um, they don't even have an external ad agency. They don't go to some, you know, Madison Avenue company and say, come up with a cool new logo for us. No, they don't do that at all. They look at the lifetime values of the customers and they say, over the last six months, um, for our most valuable customers, how were they using Battlefield 4 or whatever game we're talking about? And let's see what kind of scenes and, and features and weapons or whatever that they tend to favor. And let's just emphasize that stuff in our ads. I mean, it's just beautiful. Uh, and, and so it's not that hard. It's just that they're really thinking about it in terms of you know, letting customer lifetime value drive a lot of these tactical and strategic decisions. It just goes against the grain of what we all learn to do in business school, but all, everyone can do it. And it's even easier for younger, smaller, more agile firms. The strategic conversation is very interesting. On the execution tactic side, how do you think some of the latest technologies and data and AI can help in this? More accurate, more dynamic communication, say loyalty program? So on one hand, a lot of that rich data is the lifeblood of the customer-centric engine. There's no question about it. But if we go back to the kind of little sports uh, disagreement that we had, the, the problem is uh, that too many companies out there are spending all of their time looking at all of this different data, social media usage, biometrics, geolocation, where you're located in the social graph, uh, and they're, they're spending all their time looking at all of this data and then trying to deploy all of this different AI stuff and they're getting lost in the weeds. Uh, and so I wanna come at it in a much more principled way. I want you to be able to do all this stuff with as little data as possible. And I remember in the late 1990s um, when, when my wife took a job at a company that any of you old timers uh, might remember, a company called the Franklin Mint. <laughs> Yeah, Mark remembers it. Yes. James remembers it too. Um, they're, they're long gone now. They're, uh, anyway, whatever. Um, and my wife came back uh, and she said, have you heard about this thing called RFM? RFM? Riffem? Riffem? All right, type into the chat window, people. RFM. What does RFM stand for? Let's see if we can get it first. We can talk about Chewy.com, Jim. I'll be happy to, to, to do that in a second. There we go. Good way to go, Jose and, and Alex. That's great. Recency, frequency, monetary value. Our forefathers in direct marketing 50 years ago said those are the only metrics we need. Of course, back then, it was the opposite problem as now, of now. Because back then, data was really, really, really hard to get. And so we need to be really principled, really focused, really need to think about it. It's going to be expensive. It's going to take a while. So what are the, the fewest number of metrics we need in order to predict lifetime value? And they told us it was recency, frequency, monetary value. So today I'm saying you can keep your geolocation and keep your bioinformatics and keep your social this and that. Give me RFM. It's just as predictive as it ever was. It lets us stay very focused. It lets us, it lets us scale this stuff up better. It lets me work across a wide variety of companies without having to deal with the weird bespoke data that each one has. There's just lots and lots and lots of benefits to it. Now, granted, we have better data today. We can add some other bells and whistles to it. But I'm telling you that the models that we use at Zodiac and today at Theta Equity Partners um, start with and often ends with RFM. That's in many cases all you need. And it just makes life so much easier. So what so, about Chewy.com? What about Chewy.com? So a very interesting company. And um, I had the great pleasure that one of my former students, um, was the CMO of PetSmart right after they, they bought Chewy. And it was fascinating because there was a real culture clash because, you know, Chewy, they were just much more kind of data oriented, whereas the folks at PetSmart were more interested in 
personas and, and you know and demographics and all that sort of stuff. And so I was trying to help him. Uh, 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 Josh Cantor, his 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 name was his name still is. You know he's no longer there. <laughs> um, to try to get uh, the the folks at PetSmart to kind of embrace some of this this more nimble thinking. But at the same time, Chewy, it's a very interesting company, but a little bit arrogant as well. And while they're doing kind of better things than they were at the mothership, they, they still didn't fully embrace the right kinds of models. They're doing better stuff. Anyway, long story short, uh, Josh found it just so frustrating that he left. He said, you know, I've got to find a, a better sandbox to play in. So, but it was an interesting exercise to try to uh, create both that, that kind of integration and to, to, to raise the, the overall quantitative literacy. Didn't work well in that case, uh, but that's, that's no fault of Chewy. The part of it was, it was just the culture clash with PetSmart. When you're looking at investing in startups, can, you, can your technique be used to identify which startups to invest, which characteristics will you be looking at the CEO team to understand them from a customer centricity? We try it, you know, just I was, late last night, I was on the phone with a private equity firm over in Hong Kong, uh, and they wanted us to, to work on, uh, on a company that they're considering acquiring, but it's a, it's a very, very young company. And, we, and I tried, I looked at the data, pushed it as hard as I could, and I just didn't have enough of a data runway. And I basically told the partner of the speed, I just, sorry, I, I just, just can't do it. For the reasons that I said before, Number one is, is not only is the data really sparse, and so I don't really trust the forecast that I get from it, but number two, I remember I told you about those cross-cohort dynamics. Those early cohorts aren't typical. And you don't really want to make those uh, M&A decisions on the basis of just those, those early customers. So it's, it's really a shame in a way, because I get lots of, of VCs coming to me all the time, uh, and I'm saying, you know, here's some stuff you ought to think about and do, you know, for the next couple of years, then come talk to me. But I know my limitations. And even though I'm building models that are as good as, better than anyone else's, I know their limits. The models will look very, very good for a young company, but they won't be typical. They won't be representative of what you'd see, say, three or four years down the line. That's just, it's very unfortunate. Do you think there's any place in, in understanding our beautiful swans through qualitative face-to-face -face with customers? Yes, yes, yes. That's a great point. Okay, good, 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 good. Thank you. <laughs> um, so too often folks are leading with the qualitative. They just know that they want, you know, working Wanda, busy Betty, whatever. Um, we want to take some of that the qualitative and, and so once we figure out who are those customers, you know, on the right tail, what makes them different? Usually, I tend to focus on easily measurable and actual things, like I said before, like acquisition characteristics. But sometimes it's a great big mystery because we're looking at this, this set of customers on the right tail and we're saying they seem to have nothing in common. But that's where the qualitative might come in. We might find that this, the ways that they use the product, forget about the transactions, but the ways that they use the product, the ways that they talk about the product, just the, some of the stuff that we won't see in transaction logs might be very indicative of what sets those kinds of customers apart. And so number one, we want to start to emphasize some of those use cases in our advertising, sort of like the EA example, but then also use it as a guide for new product features that we should be developing. Uh, and of course, for a customer acquisition, if we could identify customers regardless of what they look like, who just seem to be inclined to, to use the product or talk about it in that way, it's worth anything to acquire them. So yes, there's a good role for qualitative. I won't claim any expertise on it, but it, it has a very valuable place after we've identified who those valuable customers are. What, what does the infrastructure look like that a startup should start putting in place for those first few years? So uh, a lot of it is it's, just, it's building that CRM system. It's tagging and tracking customers. You know, we're young, we're, we're, we're just busy doing a, a billion things. We'll, just, we'll sell to anyone who will buy our stuff. I understand that. But, but the problem is that once you start to grow, once you open up that second store or that second geography, you're going to kind of lose touch. And so you don't want to trust up here. You want to put it down in the CRM system. Uh, and so again, and it's not just who bought what when, but it's going to be some of these other characteristics, like the acquisition characteristics, or even the extent that you can observe some of those qualitative characteristics that make them different. So, so you want to tag and track everything. And also, this is to sound a little contradictory, you don't want to declare victory prematurely. What I'll see sometimes companies do 
is, let's say they're, you know, say two years into it and they say, wow, we can see these really great customers. Let's acquire more customers just like them, which seems to be exactly what I'm saying, right? But the problem is, I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if you get involved in too much navel gazing and you say, okay, all we're going to do is clone those customers, it could be that there's even better customers out there. Uh, and so we always have to keep ourselves, especially as a young company, open to the idea that, yes, some of our current customers are better than others, but there might be even better fish in the sea. So as much as we want to focus on the, the differences across our existing customers, we always want to be throwing those nets out there and, and testing to see uh, if there's better customers. And sometimes companies get just a little bit complacent about it and, and, and kind of miss those opportunities. For consumer brands, non-subscription, who reach customers primarily through brick and mortar retail channels, how can consumer brands identify their top customers? Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is where, where Nike comes in because you know, until very recently, Nike was one of those firms that they knew nothing about any of their individual customers. They were completely at the mercy of you know, the, the, the foot lockers and, and, and Walmarts and, and Amazons of the world. And then they made it, their, their previous CEO, Mark Parker, made it a, a strategic priority to basically that we must, must, must understand who they are. So part of it is we're going to do much more direct selling. Uh, part of it is we're going to work with our retail partners to, to better understand how those customers differ from each other. Part of it is they're no longer going to sell through Amazon. How about that? Imagine a company that has the strength, the fortitude to say, Amazon, we don't need you. Now that might be a bit, bit too much, but um, to basically say this is job one. Hey, I'll give you a really great example. And I have to be careful what I say about Nike because you know what? Let me not. They're one of your clients. Well, no, I'm, but I'm <laughs> technically, you know, I, I'm on a non-compete with them for the next several months, um, and so no, let, let me not tell my Nike stories. I, they're, they're, their lawyers have good ears and sharp teeth, um, but they're doing some some really great stuff. Some of it, what I was going to say, is is involving qualitative. Uh, it's looking at those those top customers and figuring out how they talk about and use our athletic gear is different than others. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's, it's a great example of a company that was, you know, intermediated from its end users, but really invested to, to, to develop that direct connection. Uh, and I think the wow that, that so many people had when we sold Zodiac to Nike was exactly along those lines. Like, why would they do it? And now you see the success that they've had with it. So more and more companies, whether it's for that reason or others, are trying to create that more direct connection. Uh, which, which is tough. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that some of the companies that want to do it the most are in the, uh, in other words, these consumer goods companies are in a, in a far less good position compared to a lot of other companies that have, that have that direct relationship already. B2B companies are in a better position to do this than most consumer goods companies who have to sell through retailers. Um, yet they informally get it, but they don't often embrace it as, as, Rigorously. Doesn't Walmart try to bridge that gap for them, you know, by providing all this information? Doesn't Walmart try to do that? With Walmart is absolutely trying. That was the whole proposition when they first launched Jet.com. Uh, and of course, you know, big shout out to Wharton alum, Mark Laurie, who got all that off the ground. And Walmart's been doing so many different things. You know, when I, in, in book number one, where I not only was really uh, harsh about Starbucks, and really I was, re I was and am, I guess, I have to live with this, harsh about Walmart, because 10 years ago, Walmart was basically doing nothing along these lines, because for Walmart, it was all about just selling as much stuff as we can as cheaply as possible. And the idea of having a loyalty program or any of that, no, 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 that'll just ra raise our overhead. But to Walmart's credit, they have pivoted uh, on this in a big way in these last 10 years and trying to find ways, I love this, that we can create ways to tag and track individual customers while also increasing efficiency and cutting costs. So for a while they had this thing called, I forget what, some, some, I forget the, the cutesy name of it, but basically it was just a mobile app where you would just use your phone to do the scanning. Yeah. So you would scan each product, you'd put it in your cart, and then they, you wouldn't have to have a checker scan everything for you. Uh, and so it was just much faster, labor costs were lower, you know, customer satisfaction was higher, and it gave them the ability to know exactly who was buying what. 
Lots of companies are doing that now. Amazon is doing that superbly well. But, but Walmart, to their credit, we're always looking for ways to try to increase their understanding of customers at a gradual level while also enhancing their efficiency. And it, it's hard to achieve both of those things. So big shout out to them. What tools will you suggest to measure in addition to what you're offering? Um, so, you know, first and foremost, it's the recency frequency monetary value. It's the customer lifetime value. But then it's the layer that we add on top of that. And we were talking about the qualitative. You know, I think a lot of that other stuff, a lot of those other sources of data, the geolocation and, the, and all of that. Um, so it, it's, those things are nice to know. Okay, they're not got to have. But once we understand who the best customers are, uh, that's where the machine learning comes in to be able to say, so what makes these, you know, high-end customers different than the so-so the ones? So a lot of that stuff that a lot of companies are, say, over-investing in is that next layer to add on top of these models to really start to understand and take action on them. You know, I have to admit, when I was first putting this stuff out there, I was kind of naive about it myself. And I was basically under the belief, and you can even find some old things where I'd say this, that if I could give you the CLV magic wand and you could wave it over your customers, then money will come raining down from the sky. And that's just ridiculous, okay? It's so much more complicated than that to figure out what it all means and to figure out how we could sync up the organization to really take advantage of these insights and get the people in R&D on board with the people in supply chain and talent management and all the way across the board. So a lot of the tools aren't necessarily just kind of marketing analytics stuff, but it's gonna be just, just ways to create a customer-centric corporate culture and, and organizational design. I'm no expert at that stuff, but I know that, that the, 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 it's, it's as important to achieve those goals as much as it is to wave the magic wand. All right, we're going to take one more question here. And Peter, I got to say, I wish I had you in school because I'm highly energized by hearing everything you say. And we have to have you come back again, especially when the next book comes out. So when you have an online marketplace, it's easy to keep track of your vendors, but hard to keep track of the multitude of users. What's the best platform to do that? You know, I do work with a lot of these the, 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 the platform companies uh, and actually spending a lot of time, first of all, just helping them just understand lifetime value, often in a two-sided market. So, you know, working with a, an Uber or Lyft in order to say, what's the CLV of our drivers as well as the CLV of our riders? But, but now going a, a level deeper to understand, again, I'm, and I'm not a technology guy, so, so don't, don't listen to what I'm saying over here. But spending more time with the companies like Stripe and Square, uh, companies like Shopify, uh, to, to really uh, to think more about the infrastructure, a little bit more about the technology, so that it's, it's not so much, it's not so far, and it's not as heavy a lift to, to, to have some of these ideas just woven right into those technologies. Um, so it, uh, so I mean, I'll, I'll just go that far with it, because again, usually I'm just taking the outputs from all that stuff. But you know, as I've been saying, it's really important to start building it into the infrastructure instead of saying, okay, now we got all this data, what do we do with it? So I, I recognize how important that is. Peter, I wish I could have had you more all afternoon because we never even got to jump into uh, the differences between customer centricity and product centricity. But I think overall, you kind of cover that and all the different answers that you gave today. I want to thank you so much for participating today and being our guest. And again, I say, uh, I hope we have you come back. And I know a lot of people are interested in your kit. So if you don't mind, I'm going to send you a spreadsheet of everybody who signed up for this. Please. And that way you can connect with them uh, directly. And also, uh, if you don't mind, uh, download yeah, the chat. Download the chat and send me that as well. I'd love to see what, I, I, I can't keep up with it, but I'd love to see what people are saying and asking. Uh, and if anyone's interested, I already mentioned the Twitter handle, uh, but can, I'm very happy to connect on LinkedIn. Like I said, I have just tons of content that I'm professing. So if you want to know more, I'll send plenty Type more. Type in right? your Twitter handle if you don't mind. Sure thing. So at Fader P. Follow me there. I could use a, a few more. Um, and I've been putting out, you know, light curations of, you know what, I'm going to do this right now. Well, well uh, just, just bear with me a second. I'm taking a bunch of the, the content that I've been producing, whether it's other webinars and blog posts and things like that, um, and, uh, and kind of tweeting about them. So here, I'm going to put this into the chat. Ooh, ooh. There we go. Uh-oh. 
Um, and so there's four tweets, each of which have links to other content. So you can kind of scrape those or email me. I'll send you the links. Um, again, I'm a professor. I love to profess. I appreciate people's interest. Mark, I appreciate uh, the, the platform that you've provided to, to make this conversation well, possible. Peter, thank you very much. And I want to encourage all of you to uh, come on Tuesday when Sean Murphy talks about his book, The Tribe, uh, Work Tribes, on Tuesday at, uh, at noon. And again, Peter, we look forward to having you again. Everybody have a great, safe weekend. Thank you. Bye now.